This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, if you're new today, we are going through the book of Colossians, verse by verse. We're calling this series Rooted and Built Up. And you know, as, as we were recognizing our graduates, I was thinking about all the, all the different things that the world defines greatness by. The world says that greatness is about position, achieving a certain position, having a certain prestige. The world says that Greatness is about possessions. But Jesus said, the greatest among you is the one who serves. Jesus said that true greatness, in God's eyes, is about humble service. That's what we're talking about in this text today. But Paul is talking about marks of a servant of God. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 and verses 24 and 25 today. Take a copy of God's Word and, and follow along. Marks of a servant of God. We could aspire to nothing higher than that. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is, the church, of which I became a minister, and the Greek word there literally means servant, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Father, as we get ready to study your word today, we pray that your spirit would speak to our, our minds and our hearts. Father, we thank you for these graduates. We thank you for uh, those that have poured their lives into them. And Lord, we thank you for what you're going to do in and through them in the years ahead and in their lives and in all of our lives. The greatest thing that we could do in life is to serve you with all of our lives. Lord, with our time, with our talents, with our treasure, Lord, you have called us to, to steward these things, to leverage these things for the glory of Christ, the glory of your name. May that be the passion of our hearts, as we sung earlier. And Father, for anyone here today that hasn't come into a saving relationship with you through Jesus, Lord, we pray that today would be a day of new beginnings. You've brought them into this room not by accident, but to be under the hearing of your word. Lord, we pray that today would be a turning point for many who are in this room today. And it can be if your spirit works. And so, Lord, we pray for you to speak. Help me to just get out of the way so that you and you alone, your word can be heard. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Just over 500 years ago, in the fall of 1510, a young monk 
took a trip that he expected to be the, the pilgrimage of a lifetime. He'd become a monk just five years earlier, much to the dismay of his father who wanted him to become an attorney. In fact, it was on his way home from law school one day that Martin Luther found himself in a violent thunderstorm. And as it thundered and his lightning crashed all around him, Luther feared for his life. And he fell to his knees and cried out, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk. And 15 days later, he entered a German monastery. Well, although it was the fear of death that prompted Martin Luther to become a monk, once he became a monk, it was, it was the fear of the wrath of God that consumed him. You see, Luther knew that there was a disconnect between himself and God. He knew that no matter what he tried to do to bridge the chasm, that God was perfectly holy and righteous, and he knew that deep down that, that he was unrighteous. And he didn't know how that chasm could be bridged. He did all kinds of things to try to earn God's favor, to, to atone for his sins. He would, he, would, uh, he would go long periods of time without food. He would sometimes sleep in the middle of winter without a, uh, a blanket. He would even whip himself in, in order to, to try to... Uh, he, he thought maybe he could atone for his sins or appease God in, in some way. And, and, and his, his soul was just, was just storm-tossed. But he thought this, this pilgrimage would, would, be, uh, would change everything for him. He, he, his, his, his trip was to Rome. And, and so he thought, you know, if I can go to the holy city where, where all of the traditions are and all the relics and things like that, that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna make everything right in my life. Well, the trip was a disaster. Just a total disaster. Because Luther expected in Rome to find uh, examples of servanthood and, and, uh, and, and self-denial and, and things like that. And instead, he found a lot of sin, he found a lot of luxury and self-indulgence on the part of people that he had looked up to, really. And so it was, it was very, very disillusioning for him. He got back to Germany and he tried to find help in another place. And that was in the pages of the Bible. And it was there, and especially through his study of the book of Romans, that Luther saw that the Bible not only taught about the righteousness of God, which he already knew about, but he saw that the Bible teaches about a righteousness from God. That the Bible teaches that if he would only place his trust in a Savior who was perfectly righteous, that the perfect righteousness of Jesus would be credited to his account. And that God would accept him based not on his own righteousness, but on the perfect righteousness of Jesus, the Savior. And Luther said, the day that I understood that, was the day that the gates of paradise swung open and I walked through. And from that day forward, he devoted his life to, to, to being a servant of God, not who was motivated by a desire to earn God's acceptance or appease God in some way. Luther realized he'd already been given everything. 
Luther's desire from that day forward was to serve God out of love because he understood how much God had first loved him. You know, that was the case with the Apostle Paul as well. His story has similarities to Luther's. Paul spent the first part of his life trying to measure up. And one day he discovered on the road to Damascus a Savior who had already measured up for him and who had died for him, who had loved him and given himself for him. And, And Paul's passion from that day forward was to serve God out of love because he understood how much God had loved him. That's the motivation for Christian service. What does it look like? What, is it, what, what, what marks a real servant of God? I want us to see a couple of things in our text today. The first mark of a servant of God that we see here is a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. A willingness to suffer and sacrifice. What does Paul say here in verse 24? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. If your goal in life is to create some sort of a pain-free zone for yourself, and that's the goal of most Americans, I'm afraid. Most, most Americans want to, they want to create some sort of a suffering-free zone where life can just always be uh, comfortable and, and, and all of that. If that's your goal in life, you cannot be a servant of God. You just can't be. Because the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, It tells us there that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that's a promise. In other words, if you're not experiencing any pressure or any persecution whatsoever because you belong to Christ, then maybe it's an indication that you're not standing tall enough for Christ. Because when we live all out for Him, persecution is going to come. Now, that looks different depending on the part of the world that you live in. In certain parts of the world, persecution means it could mean possible torture and imprisonment and death. Um, Here in our country, what it does mean increasingly is that we are going to be marginalized by those who tolerate everything in our culture except Bible-believing Christianity. We will suffer for our faith in Christ, and we need to be prepared for that, but we need to understand that actually when it happens, it's something that we can rejoice in. And that's what he says here at the beginning of verse 24, right? He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. I mean, how can that, how can that be? How can we rejoice in our sufferings. I want to give you four reasons. You may want to take notes at this point. Four reasons why we can rejoice if we suffer for the sake of Christ. The first reason is that it's an honor. It's an honor. In the book of Acts, when the uh, the disciples are, are persecuted uh, for 
preaching about Jesus, they're they're dragged in before this this council, and they're and they're 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 beaten and they're thrown into prison, and finally they they let them go. But Acts chapter five and verse forty one says that when they left the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They weren't out there you know, seeking after persecution. But when it happens, it's something that we can rejoice in because it, it happens because we're associated with Jesus. And anything that associates us with Jesus, it's an honor. And so the first reason that we can rejoice in suffering for the sake of Christ is that it's an honor to be associated with him. Second, it's rewarded. Jesus tells us that very clearly in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 11 and 12 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says that when we suffer for his sake, it's something that is going to be rewarded. Third, we can rejoice because if we're willing to suffer and sacrifice, it helps other people. It helps other people. Now let's look at verse 24 again in Colossians 1. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings, what? For your sake. He uses that phrase again at the end of the verse, doesn't he? He says that his suffering is for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Listen, there never would have been a church in Colossae had Paul not been willing to suffer. Had Paul not been willing to stick his neck out and be imprisoned and be beaten and be stoned, there never would have been a church in Colossae. Colossae and these other churches in the province of Rome, they would have never been planted had, had the Apostle Paul and his missionary colleagues not been willing to suffer. Nor can churches be planted and the gospel be advanced in, er, in certain areas of the world today unless people are willing to suffer and suffer big time. Listen, the gospel cannot advance in the Muslim world today, in many totalitarian countries in the world today, unless Christians are willing to die, literally. Now, sacrifice and suffering looks different for those of us who are in North America, but even local churches here, cannot advance, or they cannot advance to the degree that God would have them advance to reach their full potential unless people are willing to give of themselves and sacrifice of themselves. For the church to advance, it takes people that are willing to step up and sacrifice. People that are willing to, to, to give and to sacrifice of their time for a local church like ours to really advance for God's glory, it requires people that are willing to step up and say, you know what, Jesus is not going to get the leftovers of my time. He's not going to get the bottom of the barrel when I don't have anything else to do. Well, then I'll serve God. No, for churches like ours to really advance, it takes servants 
that are willing to step up and say, I'm going to give big time of my hours and my days to serve God and to help the church advance. It's going to require that. For local churches to advance, it takes servants that are willing to step up and say, I'm, going to, I'm all in with my talents. I'm going to take the spiritual gifts and the talents and some of the experiences and the abilities that God has given to me, and I'm going to take those things and I'm going to leverage those things for the advance of the church. And I'm willing, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to take what God has given me and use that to help the local church advance, whether it means... Uh, starting a new ministry or serving on a ministry team or a, or a committee or teaching a class or leading a small group or whatever it is, it's going to take servants that are willing to step up and do that. For local churches like ours to be all that they can be for God's glory, it's going to take people, servants, that are willing to step up and say, I'm willing to give and to sacrifice with my treasure. It's going to take some of you who are not tithing to step up and say, you know what, I'm going to trust God that if I give 10% of my income to my local church, I'm going to trust God and believe that He is going to provide. And believe me, He will. And it's going to take others that are already tithing to begin to give offerings far beyond that. Who, those of you who are blessed to be able to give far beyond a, a tithe to give offerings in such a way that it would be an absolute game changer. We're talking about, we're talking about sacrifice. We're talking about servanthood. And when it happens, it changes everything. And listen, one day... We're all going to stand before a Savior with pierced hands. And I can promise you this. You won't regret one hour or one dollar given for the advance of the gospel. Because in that moment, what's really important is all going to be crystal clear. And it's what's done and what is given for Jesus Christ that is going to last forever. Dr. D.A. Carson is one of my heroes. He's a New Testament scholar and... And Dr. Carson talks about a time in his life when God just took him to a new level of commitment and sacrifice and where God called upon him to give more. And he said that in those days as a young man that there was a chorus that he had learned in Sunday school as a small child that just kept going through his mind again and again. And the words of the chorus went like this. By and by when I look at his face... Beautiful face, thorn-shadowed face. By and by, when I look at his face, I wish I had given him more. There's a fourth reason why we can rejoice in, in suffering or sacrifice, and that is that it helps us. It not only can be used to help other people, but it helps us as well. It helps us to grow in Christ. It's interesting the city of Colossae was in the Roman province of Asia, modern country of Turkey today. But in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about some of the things that he and his missionary colleagues went through as they evangelized uh, this, the province of, of Asia. 
And in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, he, he makes this statement that just, it says so much about how the Lord can use our trials and, and the painful times in life to take us to a new level spiritually. Paul says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Many of you could stand up and give testimony this morning about how God used those some of the deepest, darkest times in your life to enable you, to teach you how to rely on Him to a greater extent. Times in your life where you just had to exchange your weakness for God's strength and learn how to rely on Him. And so God, God uses trials and suffering to help us, to form us, to grow us, to mature us. That's what he's talking about, what James is talking about in James chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. And so God uses trials and sufferings to mature us, to complete us. Before we leave the subject, what is Paul talking about at the end of verse 24? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a puzzling phrase, isn't it? He says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What on earth? is he talking about there? Well, what he's definitely not talking about is that somehow the atonement of Christ, the suffering of Christ for us was insufficient or lacking in some way. He obviously doesn't mean that. What did Jesus cry out as he was hanging on the cross? He cried out, it is what? Finished! Paid, <clears throat> paid in full, done, complete. So he's certainly not saying that somehow um, our sufferings um, add to the work of Christ upon the cross. We can't add one thing to it. It's done, finished, complete. What I think Paul means by this is that he's participating, that when we suffer for the sake of Christ, that we are participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for His body, the church. In other words, even though Christ is now exalted in heaven, when we suffer for His sake, because we belong to Him, even though He's exalted, He suffers with us with his people. Now we see this on the day, that, the day that Paul was saved. It was on the road to Damascus. And of course, Paul, who was called Saul at that point, had been going around and, and having Christians 
beaten and, and, and killed and thrown into prison. And on the way to Damascus, he meets the risen, exalted Christ. And what does Jesus say to Paul on that day? We see it in Acts chapter 9 and verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice, it was the voice of Christ, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not just, why are you persecuting Christians? No, Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? And so, whenever Christians are persecuted, it's Christ himself that is being persecuted. And he suffers with us when we suffer for his sake. Dr. Helen Rosevear was a medical missionary who served in Zaire, Africa for many years. And her first dozen years or so there, very, very happy time. But in 1964, there was a civil war in that part of Africa. And for five and a half months, Dr. Rosevere and her co-workers were subjected to just unbelievable brutality and torture. And one day, when she was about to be executed, a 17-year-old boy stepped in and defended her. And they beat him within an inch of his life. And this was a boy who was very special to her. She helped to run an orphanage and so forth. And, and so uh, she had you know, invested in his life and, 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 just, and, and loved him. And, and, uh, and he was you know, like one of her children. And so she had to watch him be beaten and kicked around like a soccer ball and, and left for dead. And, and Helen said in that moment, I felt completely abandoned by God. And she said, it was in that moment, as I felt so forsaken by the Lord, that that the Spirit of God spoke to me. And he said, Helen, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. The privilege of being identified with me. These are not your sufferings. These are my sufferings. And she said in that moment, she was just overwhelmed by a sense of identification with Christ, of of union with, with Christ. Now, this is what Paul refers to in Philippians 3 as the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. There's a special closeness to Jesus that we sense whenever we suffer for his sake. And so the first mark of a servant of God is a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. Second, there is a faithfulness in stewardship. A faithfulness in stewardship. Verse 25, Paul says, Of which I became a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, the word stewardship in Greek is a compound word. It's a combination word. It's a combination of the Greek word for house and the Greek word for manage. 
So a steward is someone who manages the household of another. And in the ancient world, this was a very, very honored position. A position of great responsibility to be entrusted to, uh, to manage uh, the, the master's household. And the Bible says that we're to think of ourselves as stewards. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. One of the marks of Christian maturity is that we stop thinking of ourselves as owners and we begin to think of ourselves as stewards. We talked about some of those things earlier. Time, talents, treasure. We stop thinking about ourselves as owners of those things and we begin to think about of ourselves as stewards of those things that God has entrusted to us. But we're also to think of ourselves as stewards of something else. We're to think of ourselves as stewards of the Word of God, as stewards of the gospel message. And that's really what he's talking about here in verse 25. Let's look at it again. He says, Of which I became a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul says, I'm a steward of the word. All of us as as Christian believers are called to be stewards of God's word. Now, there are two shades of meaning to that. One shade of meaning in stewarding the word means that when we teach it or when we talk about it, whether we're teaching in a class or in a setting like this or across the lunch table from a friend this week, that, that, we, that, we, that we teach it honestly, as it is. You, in fact, you could translate it here in verse 25 um, to, uh, to teach the Word of God in its, in its fullness, to share God's Word in its fullness. That's what Paul's ta- talking about in Acts 20:27, 20, when he says that we're to, we're to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And so being a steward of God's Word means that we don't subtract from the Bible, that's what liberals do, nor do we add to the Bible. That's what legalists do. We don't want to do either one of those things. We, we, just want to, we just want to be faithful to share it as it is. Okay, So that's part of what it means to be a faithful steward of the Word. But another shade of meaning of that is that we want to be stewards of the Word in the sense that we share the Word. That instead of, instead of hoarding the Word and keeping it within us, that we herald the, the Word, that we share it with other people, that we don't commit the sin of silence. Listen, if we're silent with the message of the Gospel, we're not being a faithful steward of the Word. And that's really, that's really the heart of what I think Paul is talking about here in verse 25. 
When he, when he talks about the stewardship that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, he's talking about our evangelistic missionary assignment. That we have a stewardship from God. God is entrusting us to get the message of the gospel out. I heard a funny story about a couple who would go to the, the fair every year. And every year they would come up on this exhibit where uh, the, guy, the guy would take people up for an airplane ride. And it was unbelievably cheap. It was like $10 and he'd take you up for a spin in this little, little airplane. And every year this couple would come up to this uh, place at the fair and, uh, and the husband would want to go, uh, John and Sally. And John would want to go on that airplane ride. And so every year he'd try to persuade his wife. And they'd get in this argument about money. And Sally was kind of a penny pincher, you know. And so she'd say, well, John, you know, $10 is $10. And every year he'd try to persuade her, hey, really, I'll never get a chance to ride in a plane again, you know. But uh, yeah, every year she'd say, hey, $10 is $10, you know. Well, anyway, one year they get up to the to a little uh, exhibit area, and they start to argue about money again. She's saying $10 is $10. And the guy says, hey, listen, I'll make you a deal. If, you, if neither of you will say a word, I'll take you up for free. I'll take you up for free. But if during the course of the flight, if either of you says one word, I'm going to expect $10 when we hit the ground. Is a deal. So they took off in the plane. He's turning, twisting, turning the plane upside down, doing all kinds of things to try to get one of them to say something, and there just is just absolute silence. They finally touch down, and the pilot looks over at John. He said, "Man, I thought for sure I would get one of y'all to say something." And John looked over at him and said, "Well, I thought about saying something when Sally fell out of the plane." <laughs> But ten dollars is ten dollars. <laughs> well, there's a time when silence is golden, right? But there, there's a time when silence is a sin. And when it comes to the message of the gospel, listen, silence is a sin. We're called to speak. We're called to share the message of the gospel. That's what it means to be a faithful steward of the word of God. Is that we're willing to speak it, to share it with those who need to know Christ. We're to share it deeply in its fullness to teach the whole counsel of God and we're to share it widely to be evangelistic, to be missionary. And our vision at First Baptist is to be both. It's not an either or. It is a both and. It's not, we're not being a faithful New Testament church if we just say, hey, you know, we're going to go deep into the Word, you know, but we're not going to care about missions and evangelism. And we're not being faithful to the Word if we say, well, you know what, hey, we're going to be a great soul-winning church, and we got lots of people, and we're all into numbers and all that, but no one's being discipled. Neither of those things. It's, it's, it's a portrait of a healthy New Testament church. In a healthy New Testament church, we're passionate about both of those things. We're, we're passionate about diving deep into the Word. And we're also passionate about evangelism and missions. And as we're passionate about those things, listen, God is going to bless a church like that. Because God is, God is invested, God is all in, all in to those things. 
And as we invest our lives in those things, listen, we can expect Almighty God to come alongside in power, in power, and to bless the church. And indeed, He already is blessing our church, and He will bless it more in the years to come as we're faithful, faithful to invest in the things that reflect His heart. Our decision this past week to proceed with the renovation of our facilities is huge because we're, we're looking to the future. We've got a vision to look toward the future, to what God is, is, is going to do in our future for our church. And to step out in faith like that, it honors the Lord. And as we continue to, to stay with it and to share the gospel and to teach the word of God, God is going to bless. And we're going to be ready for that. And as we do it, we don't do it alone, far from it. And, and, and now we're going to transition to what we're going to talk about next Sunday. We do it with the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Verses 26 to the end of this chapter are about the power of the Spirit coming alongside us as we serve God. I have a child who's flying in today to the airport and when she gets off the plane and uh, and walks down the the corridor where she's going to really pick up speed is where she gets to that moving sidewalk where it's the the floor is moving is moving beneath her and as we as we engage in the things that that God is passionate about evangelism, making disciples, moving forward for His glory. Listen, the Holy Spirit of God comes alongside and comes underneath His people in, in power. That's what we're going to be talking about next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the privilege of being able to serve You. God, what an honor it is. We thank You for Your calling on our lives. Thank You for calling us to Yourself. When we were lost and without you, Lord, we thank you that you put someone in our path, that you sent someone to us. Lord, we've seen examples of that even in this service and the investment in these young people. You, you sent parents and Sunday school teachers and children's workers and people that were willing to, to give of themselves and to invest in others for your glory, to serve Father, we thank you. Thank you for the way that you've that you put servants in this church, the way that you're continuing to do that. And Lord, uh, the great things that you have ahead for this church family as we serve you together. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't yet know Jesus. Lord, I pray that right now that you would work in their hearts trust in the Savior, to turn from trying to do life apart from Him and running from Him and to turn and begin to run toward Him. As we just reflect for a moment, it could be that God just brought you here today and you've never entered into a saving relationship with Him through His Son. I can tell you on the authority of all of God's Word, 
He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And He's proven that love by giving giving His Son for you, who took your sins upon Himself and died in your place and rose so that you can have eternal life. His arms are open to you today. Would you come running to Him today? In just a moment, we're going to have a song of invitation. And if the desire of your heart is to follow Christ, in just a moment, as others stand around you, I want to invite you to step out and come. I'm going to be right here at the front. Just share with me what God has done in your life today. Or maybe you're here today and you say, I want to be a part of what God is doing in this church family. I want to invite you to come. If you're you're here today and you just desire prayer, Our altar is open to you. You can come and pray with myself or one of our pastors. So, Father, we give you this time of invitation. Lord, would you work and move in hearts right now for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.